Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 10 this morning. Mark chapter number 10. That may come as a surprise to some of you. If, um, if you've been with us, you know that we have been in the book of Jonah. We have one chapter to go, and we're there in chapter number four, which is quite the controversial chapter. Um, but I hope that you'll give me the liberty this morning to take somewhat of an excursion from that that I'll explain in just a few moments. But um, even with that, don't think that I've abandoned the book of Jonah altogether, um, that it is in part the fruit of, of that work that would lead me here um, today, among, among other things, and address something that I need, think needs to be addressed within our, our congregation and, and could lead to a, a series of messages over the next few weeks, I hope to instruct and to encourage your hearts in an area um, that I think we need to be, to be reminded of. Um, so this will be somewhat of an introductory message um, it will be a departure from our norm, um, although we will spend uh, a decent deal of our time later on in the sermon um, here in Mark chapter number 10, but I hope that you'll afford me this liberty um, instead of taking a passage like we normally do and just spend the entire time exegeting and drawing out the meaning of that passage. Um, today may look a little bit different, but uh, take heart, next week we will return to that, that method, but... But in some sense, today, I, I would like to put off any, in all real professionalism, and just speak to you as a pastor, and as a man to men. So, if you're willing and able, would you stand with me, out of, for, out of reverence for the reading of God's Word? We'll take up our reading in verse number 17. Mark chapter 10, verse 17, we read these words. Probably familiar words to you all. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept for my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at his word, or at this word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Let's pray. Lord, 
Lord, we do thank you and praise you once again for this Lord's Day. A day that we can set aside for you, for the worship of our God, for the exaltation of the Son, and for the work of the Spirit in our lives. Father, we recognize that we come together to serve you, and yet you are the greatest servant of all. And in these ordinary means of grace, you condescend into lowly places and speak to us like a father to his children in words that we can understand. And by the power of your spirit, grow mighty oaks full of fruit as a result of it. Lord, our service to you is no doubt one of the greatest gifts that you've ever given us, that we might know and love the one true God through the person of Jesus Christ. So we praise you for that. We praise you for the preserved word of God. We praise you, Father, that you saw fit to leave us a few words in which we could wrap ourselves around and be hopeful and be peaceful and be joyful and be loving. Father, and that in it we would see the very person of Jesus Christ, that you would reveal his glory through seemingly such low means as a written word. But isn't that how you get glory? By using those things that seemingly are mundane. And by, Father, choosing the low things of the world, you exalt them that you may receive the glory. And, Father, with the foolish, you confound the wise. And, Father, we are foolish people today. We are sinners saved by grace at best. And Lord, we pray that you would crown your glory upon the congregation of your people, not only in this place, but throughout all the world, giving us humble hearts, Father, that we may hear from the triune God and that we may be continually transformed by the renewing of our mind into the very image of your Son. Father, establish now the works of our hands, yea, establish thou yet. Put upon the, the people of God the very beauty of Jesus Christ, that we may behold it and that we may glory in it and that all the world would see a display of that. Lord, we need you to accomplish this because we can. So, Father, do among your people what you desire and do it through your word. Father, help me to have words to say. And Father, hide any pride or arrogance in the depths of my soul that I may not find it even if I tried that you may receive the glory and honor that is due your name, and that you would speak to us all, Father, from the oldest to the youngest, even our little ones, as they sit in this congregation, having never seen the glory of Christ. May today be the day where you reveal yourself to them, such that it would change their hearts, and they would spend their lives spending and being spent for your Son. Father, this is our grand desire. So remove ourselves, chip away at our sinful flesh. Father, and arm us with the very armor of God that we may serve you all our days. Lord, it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much for standing. It was a few years ago we began a journey in our church working through family life. 
probably four years ago now, pre-COVID days. <laughs> we have to mark out time now by that, which is dreary and sad. But the next calamity will come, and COVID will be history. But it was around that time, I want to say 2019 or so, maybe, maybe farther back, I'm not 100% sure. I really saw it as a need to simply work through what a biblical family is and how it operates within the home and, and really try to bolster up and, and guard even against things like idolatry of the family, yet at the same time give the family um, the place that we believe God desires, right? To put it upon the stand that it deserves, yet at the same time not to put it upon the throne of our hearts in such a way that we would worship the family instead of worshiping God, but that in worshiping God preeminently, he gives us a proper view um, of the family, and it was so helpful to me in my own life. And what you will find that is oftentimes, as we depart from certain texts, and even as we look into the book of Jonah, or we go to the book of Mark, you know, um, that, that there's many reasons in which you select a passage of scripture, or you begin to work through a book, um, but it's, it's, it's extremely hard for the man who's, who's striving to do that, to separate himself um, from the reality of the text or from the book. It's not arbitrary. I remember picking, going through the book of Mark. I needed the gospel. <laughs> I needed it so much. I needed to see Christ in all of his glory for 16 chapters in almost two years. I, I personally needed that. And those messages... From week to week, we're somewhat of the overflow of that. That's what the man of God should be. Those that are striving to be ministers, we are not mere theologians. We are not, high, we're not in high and lofty towers uh, spending, you know, 40 or 50 hours a week locked away reading about dead men and dead men's lives. We are men who live lives in lively union and communion with Christ. And those men are our aids and our helps to point us toward Jesus Christ. And as we live out that life in union and communion with God, it should pour out an overflow into the congregation. Um, that, that's what a prophet is. And the same should be with you in your life. You should be living out your life for Jesus Christ in such a way that as you labor in the word, even as seemingly laymen, you might think, common men, men who are, are, are not of any stature or in great places within the body of Christ, and you see yourself as somewhat inferior, know that you are not. That each of you, man, woman, and child, are necessary within the body of Christ for this to function as it is. And your first and primary calling in that life is a life lived with, for, and in Jesus Christ. He is the preeminent one. He is the one in whom all other life flows out of. That if you want a strong family, you want to be a man that God um, has designed to be a blessing to your home, to your wife. If you want to love your wife like Christ loved the church, it's, it's more than just a tyrannical forcing of the hand and causing your wife to submit and, and putting your thumb upon your children. Um, it is loving them as Christ has loved you. 
Um, that is our first and primary calling. And in some sense, you're going to see that here in this text in the book of Mark. You're going to see it in Luke. You're going to see it in Matthew. You're going to see that one of the primary messages that we have to preach from the gospel messages is that when a man, a woman, a child comes to the gospel, they forsake all that they have for Jesus Christ. Um, and from that should flow, as Christ is preeminent, we yield all things to him. You yield all things to him. You yield your wife. You yield your husband. You yield your family. You yield your children. You yield your career. We yield this church to him and to him alone. We pull down all the thrones and all other dominions. And why? So that Jesus Christ might be the crown of all that we are and all that we have. And when we lose that, we lose it all. Every bit of it. If we are not laboring for and after that, um, then we are laboring in our own strength. Um, no doubt. But years, as I said a few years ago, we, we, we labored through the family. And as I said, that was one of the most fruitful times for me. Um, because in some sense, I had not done it in the depth that I had done it then. You know, I... You get the benefit of the fruits of my studies, but to be honest with you, like I'm the one that I feel like I benefit the most. And the position, in some sense, demands me to go, and it's something that I hope that you two would as well um, long for and to go yourselves, that I would simply be a leader and an example into that, and that you two would know the fruit of true communion with God and that it would overflow I'm into your family. So God was forming our family at the time. And God was leading me to love my wife like Christ loved the church. And God was leading her to be more joyful and more submissive. And, and there was just this union and communion that that's just has been so sweet. It's not been perfect. And, 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 and as our family has grown, just giving us a greater love for our children and, our, and, and praying for our children and just just desiring that our children would know God and that they would, too, have that lively union and communion with Him, that they would not only just um, live in an external uh, sense of mechanics, um, but they, they, too, out of a love for God, would love us, and that out of the, because out of the love that we have for Him, we love them. And, and God was just so gracious to me and to my family during that time, and I pray that he was for many of you as well. Um, but, so we labored through what the husband was to be, and we labored through what the wife was to be, and we labored through what the father was to be, and we labored through what the, 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 the mother was to be, and we labored through what the children were, were to be. And then we tried to apply that to our lives. And I'm at a point to where over the last several weeks and maybe even months and, and just a, a decline in some areas, you know, even as your pastor, I have to often strive to help you recognize that, that, that I too am a man. And that while I speak of that as somewhat of a height of our marriage and maybe even within the church, you know, the Lord was forming our church through that time as well. You know, it was a time in which we looked around and we said, you know, we need some order in our homes. Uh, we need to kind of order things in a way. I've, I've been more convicted about order uh, as of the last several months than I ever have been in my life. 
I think that it honors God. I think order within the church is honoring to God. I think when you look out into the cosmos, you don't see chaos, you see order. God orders it, and there's order that is um, within, within the home. And, and so as we're even fashioning the church, the church has been a lot like my family. You know, a guy who's just growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ who doesn't really know what he's doing most days. And there has been this progressive sanctification. And the more people that have come and the more children that I've added, I've recognized, man, there was a lot of blind spots that I didn't see until more came. You know, so some people come to the church and they look at the church and they say, man, this doesn't look like a Reformed Baptist church I've ever seen. And I look at them and I say, I've never been in a Reformed Baptist church before. And this is kind of what we've been doing. This is, we've just been growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so you look at my family seven years ago and it'll be different than what you look like it today. And when you look at it today and, and you look at the church seven years ago, you're going to look at it like it is different today. But it's interesting how all of these things, you're just battling with the exact same things from year to year. You know, and that, that, that while it was a mountaintop experience years ago in my, my own family, um, as we continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and, and God just gives us a love for one another and shores up those realities within the roles and responsibilities of the home, we recognize that that is the nature of the Christian life. That oftentimes those things will need to be recycled and revisited. Um, that, that me as a father has not yet achieved what I have been apprehended for, and neither have you, and neither have we as a church. That we are a church that is on this progressive um, path of sanctification, and that we need to continually um, recycle through these realities, some of them, and we need to kind of um, pray that God would revive those realities in our heart and life, um, because we can easily get distracted by the devil, we can easily get uh, consumed by the flesh, and we can allow our duties, our responsibilities, our roles, and ultimately um, the, the, uh, the, the, the service to God that he has called us to somewhat grow hard and cold and even fall to, to the wayside. And the thing that concerns me the most is that oftentimes those peripheral things um, are actually... Uh, just symptoms of a greater problem. You know, that you could look within the church or I could look within my home and I can see um, all the failings and the doings and dealings with my children. And you could look at that and you could say, you know, um, that there's issues here that we need to fix and there's practical things there that we need to fix and, and we need to work on this kind of peripheral things, fix up the outside. And sometimes that's necessary and sometimes that's good and sometimes that's right. But at the same time, um, sometimes it's a deeper problem. And that deeper problem is, is that we are not communing with God as we should and as we must. The, the, the problem is, is that, that Christ, who once was preeminent, um, is no longer. Why? Because if Christ was preeminent, then we would be giving um, the, the much needed due to these areas of our life, right? So the goal of, uh, even uh, from, from a medical perspective, being a registered nurse by trade, uh, being in the hospital, the goal is, is yes, to somewhat attend to the need. Someone comes in with chest pain. It's crushing, and there's, uh, it's, it's radiating up to their jaw. We, we don't just, we, the, the goal is not to somewhat anesthetize and take that pain away and say, pat you on the back and say, go, brother, come back if you need more. You know, the goal is, is yes, you, 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 you give to that need in the moment, yet at the same time, um, you, you seek to diagnose the deeper problem. 
Thus, we give attention and the greatest attention in that moment to getting that person upon the procedure table. Why? Because they're no doubt having a heart attack. I'm in a similar way. Um, what happens oftentimes is that stubborn men stay at home. Uh, why? Because they just strive to deal with it on their own. And they end up dying. They come in later and now half of the heart muscle's dead. Why? Because they just couldn't come to grips with the reality that something's actually wrong. I mean, eventually it'll go away, right? That's what I do with my pains. I don't like to self-examine myself. I don't like to look into the mirror. I don't like to go to the doctor. I don't like to, the diagnosis. Why? Because I'm afraid of what it might be. I'm afraid to look in the mirror. Oftentimes, I'm afraid to read the Word of God. Why? Not because I don't think that He will speak, but because I know that He does. You know? That oftentimes, we can, we can kind of get, get, get deterred from the busyness of life in such a way that we get deterred from actually what matters. We begin to ignore things. We begin to ignore our health. We begin to ignore, ignore certain signs. Why? Because we don't want to actually deal with the issues or deal with the problems. But the reality is, is there are some things that must be addressed, and if they're not addressed, um, they are the killers not only of bodies, but spiritually they are the killers of men's souls. And so we as individuals, we as families, and we as churches must without a doubt um, become, become somewhat diagnosticians of our own souls as we look into the mirror of God's Word and ask ourselves, um, you know, how am I doing in relationship to the Lord? And oftentimes those symptoms will arise and they will point us towards deeper problems and God will use those um, to diagnose the true issues and oftentimes spiritually it's issues of the, of the heart. And so I, I come to you in part because with this, because over the last several weeks I've been studying and particularly uh, my own life, looking at my family, looking at my children, and not only that, but looking at our church and think that it would be a good time to recycle through some of those things, particularly parenting, and particularly how we relate to our children. Um, that we as pastors, Robert and myself, um, I've heard Robert, I don't know how many times, say, I'm praying for the children within our church. I look around and I just see such a tremendous blessing um, as God has given us just no doubt a, a plethora of fruit of the womb. And it just continues to come. Um, and God has given us a burden for them. And in doing that, God has given us a burden for you. You know, we don't look as pastors and shepherds simply as the pastors and shepherds of the adults within our congregation. Um, we recognize that within the workings of God, naturally and spiritually, that He has given us fruit from the womb in which we must embrace wholeheartedly, preeminently giving ourselves to Christ and thus yielding our children to God. And yielding our children to God is, is yielding to Him full ownership and authority over them. 
And in yielding that authority and ownership over to him and recognizing that he owns them anyway, we yield ourselves our parenting, we yield ourselves our attributes, our attitudes fully to them. So as I look at my own home, I see some, some, some soul work that needs to be done. But two, as I look at our church, I see some spiritual work, too, that needs to be done. I read through these passages, um, such as 1 Samuel chapter number 3. I read through passages in the Proverbs. I read through the Psalms. I read through so many things. I read in the passages such as in Exodus, and, and for some of you, it concerns me. It concerns me in the way that you, 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 you relate to your children. And it concerns me in some ways I relate to my children. Why? Because the scriptures are clear. That, that, that the way that we engage our children um, can affect their souls. Um, it has the potential to push them onto Christ. Or it has the potential to push them away from Christ. Now when I say that, inevitably what someone will pipe up and say is, is we're sovereign grace kind of people. You know, we are the kind of people who believe that God sovereignly extends grace to people, including our children. And to some that will lead, it shouldn't, but to some that will lead with somewhat of an apathetic and indifferent attitude. If God will save them, God will save them. But we must not be hyper-Calvinist in regard to our children. That while we recognize, yes, that the end is God's, and if they will be saved, they will be saved, we also must recognize that, that the, the, the opposite is, is that, that, that there is a, an equally true reality that God ordains the means as well as the end. And with a hyper-Calvinist who would say to men like uh, William Carey, who desires to go off into the world and proclaim the gospel. Why? Because Jesus Christ deserves the worship of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Men would look at him and say, Son, you don't need to go. If God wants to save them, God will save them. He was not apathetic and indifferent. Why? Because he understood that God ordained means as well as ends. And if that end is going to be accomplished, the means must be employed. And the, and the employment of the means is the proclamation of the gospel faithfully to the ends of the earth. But I must say, church, that there is a mission field within your home. There is a mission field, too, within this church. That our, all of our efforts and our endeavors cannot be wholly um, pointed externally, but, too, must be pointed internally. And that we, as parents, are the primary gospel proclamators and proclaimers to our children, not only in word, but also in deed. Not only by, by, by word, but also in action, by character, by attitudes. Therefore, on a daily basis, we have to take up, as, again, as God is preeminent, we must take up the task that God has given us, such as in Deuteronomy chapter number 6, to teach them diligently the things that I have commanded you to take up our task in Psalm chapter 127 as warriors with arrows within our hands to shape them, to direct them, and to shoot them into the darkness of this world. To, to say in tandem with the, with the Proverbs that if you're to train up a child in the way that they will go, then when they're old, they won't depart from that. To, to fully embrace that both positively but also negatively. 
to realize that the neglect or abuse of our duties will, will most often naturally be a means to harden your child's heart, to exasperate them to wrath, and to deter them from the gospel message altogether. That they will import the reality of the Father and misinterpret um, His attributes and character. Why? Because of, because of our neglect and our duty. And that's what you see in places like 1 Samuel chapter 3. Um, you see a man who is there, even a priest who has neglected his duties there in 1 Samuel chapter number 3 and did not restrain his children. And thus he is fully accountable and, and a curse falls upon not only the whole house, but upon all the generations. Right? But I must encourage your hearts because while there is somewhat of a concern for our church, there is too a hopefulness. Why? Because some of you have taken that task and you have fully embraced that reality and you are proclaiming the gospel not only in word but also in deed to your children. And you can see that that is taking root. And thus we are encouraged. But today is not to depress you. It is not a guilt trip to, to push you. Um, in some direction. Why? Because if you don't, it's embarrassing or it's this or that. It is to create and cultivate in you through the word of God a true hopefulness that if I am faithful, God will generally utilize that as a means not only to create a good little caricatures of what Christians ought to be, but to truly convert the souls of these young men and young women within this church. That there is a reality within the context of cultural Christianity that, that predicts, even within our church, that 85% of our young men and women will abandon the faith when they're 18. Not if I have anything to say about it. I am aiming for my children 100%. You say all seven, you better believe I am hopeful that God will all seven. Again, not in some respect that I can save my children, but I am hopeful that the means that God has given me, He generally blesses and utilizes. And I have come to the grips with the reality that if God has given me those children, He has given me those children, not arbitrarily, but for a reason. And that reason is to train them up in the way that they ought to go, to employ both discipline and instruction, to restrain them from sin and to point them in that right direction, guarding their little hearts and keeping that soil tenderized such that, such that when the seed of God's Word goes forth, the Spirit of God reigns upon it and cultivates in them a godliness, a regeneration of heart and a desire to serve Him all the days of their lives. And that's exactly what you see presented in the Proverbs. That's exactly what you see within the Psalms, even the Psalm that we read just this morning in Psalm chapter number 128. You see the blessing of God upon those who are faithful. You see places like Exodus chapter number 20. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands. To those who love me and keep my commandments. And just as much as we have a 1 Samuel chapter 3 with an Eli who is accountable for, for the abuse and the neglect of his authority, we too have a Jeremiah 35 where the son of Rechab, Jonadab, is faithful to God and God even uses him as, a, as, a, as a, an indictment against Israel saying, His children obeyed him and you won't obey me. 
And then he finishes it with his promise to Jonadab and the, and the Rechabites. And he says in, in uh, Jeremiah chapter number 35, But to the house of the Rechabites, Jeremiah said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have obeyed my, the commands of Jonadab your father and kept all the precepts and done all that he commanded you. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab the son of Rahab, Rechab, shall never lack a man to stand before me. The NIV says that the the, the son of Rechab will never fail to have a descendant to serve me. That God blesses the faithfulness and the obedience of the saints who fully embrace the task, the the authority of God, make Christ preeminent, receive their children as those whom are gifts from the Lord and heritage from Him for Him and embrace the task, not in idolatry bowing before the throne of their children, not worshiping and serving them in an idolatrous manner, but recognizing this gift from the Lord has been given to me for a time. And in that time, I am commanded to be faithful. And in that faithfulness, I have every right to hope in God. I have every right to expect His work to take root in my family and to take root in my life. And thus we are commended by God and His Word to a faithfulness of activity, not only in the home, but within the context of the church. That God can and that God will work if we employ the means that He has given us. And this is historically true as well as it is biblically true. And I would encourage you to go to the story that's often quoted in sermons just like these concerning Jonathan Edwards and a man by the name of Max Jukes. And read of the lineage of a faithful man by the name of Jonathan Edwards who lived in the 1700s, a faithful preacher, not perfect, but faithful to his family, faithful to his church, and faithful to his home. And God blessed his lineage for generations. And the same is true of the other. The man who did not plow the field, allowed weeds to grow over. You know what happened? His children's hearts were hardened, exasperated to wrath because of the abuse and the neglect of his duty. And it rained forth in generation after generation after generation. Why? Because you lose your children, you lose your grandchildren. You gain your children. You teach them to be men and to love their wives. And Christ takes root in their hearts and their lives. And Christ is preeminent. And it pours forth like like fountains of water from this generation to the next. And that that is the desire of this church. I'm not I'm not looking for a one generation church. I'm not looking for a time in which we are creative and innovative and building something of a reformed brand for this generation only to die in the next. I'm looking for my children and my grandchildren and my children's grandchildren to be be employing and receiving the means of grace. You say, that's a high and lofty order. I have no reason to believe that that's not what God desires. But if that's to happen, God must be preeminent. The idols must come down. The issue is not within the mechanics of your home. The issue oftentimes when the mechanics are going awry, disorder and chaos has ensued. The the problem is, is that other things are upon the throne and not God. 
Because when Christ is preeminent, all things yield to Him and we receive our children as they are. And as hard as it is and as difficult as it is to plow, to wake up in the morning and to go out into the field and till up the soil and put out the fertilizer and prune the plants and, 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 and that fruit may grow from sun up to sun down and as meaningless as it seems like it might be in some days it is. If that is the means that God has employed, thus we, 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 we receive it even joyfully on most days. That this is a work that God has given me to do. You know, what a blessing. What a privilege. What a joy. Again, not to the extent that I, that, 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 that reality will turn the, or will take away the heartache, it will take away the toil, it will take away the trouble, or it will take away the pain. Work is hard. But work is good. And work is blessed. And God has given us a field as families. But even at that, He's given us a field as a church to labor hard in. And if all I ever do with my life is spend time in the field of my yard, in the field of this church, then it is a, a faithful work that can not only extend to the nations geographically, but could pour out like fountains of living water, even to multiple to thousands of generations. Like That's what... I'm believing. Why? Because that seems to be what God desires. That seems to be the great design. But if that's to take place, God must be preeminent. All of that was somewhat diagnostic. To put before you God's design for your children. To ask the question, is God preeminent? Is God preeminent in your life? You say, how do I know that? I look at the peripheral. And I ask questions. Because what we see in Mark chapter number 10 is the same thing that we see in Luke chapter 14. It's the, it's the same thing that we see in Matthew chapter number 13. It's the same thing that we see um, all throughout the Gospels. That when a man comes to Christ, he comes to Christ dethroning everything in his life. And while parenting is a priority within this congregation, it is not the preeminent call. But when the preeminent thing is put in its place, know that all other priorities will be made and that parenting will be a priority. Loving uh, 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 the, the, the roles within the family will become a priority. Evangelism in this church will become a priority. Reaching the nations, which is God's design and His desire, will become a, will become a priority within this congregation. That the goal is not so much let's make the right priorities right, but, let, but, let's, let, but, but let's yield to Christ in His preeminence. And as He is preeminent, um, our priorities will fall in place. As God guides us in His Word and girds us by the power of His Spirit, but we first must be willing to give up all things for Christ. And that's exactly what you see here in Mark chapter number 10. Again, you read these words. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. 
You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to them, Teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. What an arrogant statement. Then Jesus looking at him, I love that. Jesus looking at him, loved him. Loved him. And said to him, quote, one thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. Mark chapter 10 presents to us a true man, a real man, a factual man, a real account in Christ's dealings with God, or Christ's dealings with man. And what you realize is that in some sense, this man embodies most all men, right? That God is not simply recording these accounts for recording's sake. But at the end of John's gospel, he tells us why certain things are recorded. Why? So that you may know and that you may believe. God is interested in drawing out of you, producing in you faith to believe in his name. So these accounts are targeted towards the heart of man such that it might, that by the power of the Spirit, he might deal with the souls of the men and women even here today. And we do that by relating to us through these men in some reality. We don't just detach this and say that that was that guy and I'm a different guy. The reality is, is that we're all this guy. We're all guys and gals who have things in our life in which we will not release in, in submission to God that keeps us from a true, lively union, communion, a relationship with our Lord. What was the flavor of this man, of this man's idols? Um, it was his wealth and it was his self-righteousness. Without a doubt, he saw that nothing that he had done was wrong and maybe even had somewhat of a, a mindset that because of, his, his, because of his obedience and his keeping of the law that God had blessed him with wealth and with, with, with things and barns and barns and bigger barns. As he looks and he sells self, with self-righteousness, I've in some sense kept all the law. And he answered to him and said, Teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. Jesus looks at him and loved him. And I love that. I mean, that's a, if you write in your Bibles, I'm not saying you have to, if, you have a, if that's, a, if that's a, an offense to your conscience because it's the Word of God, but if it was, I would be underlining, underlining, highlighting arrows to this point. Why? Because Jesus' confrontation with the idols of his heart, men often take as a, as a confrontational method that is unloving and abusive, that you might point out the sin in their life, but Jesus in love is striving to help this man diagnose the evils of his own heart and by asking in him questions and provoking him to think about his own righteousness and the things that he has, that he's unwilling to give up. So Jesus looks at him, loves him, and says to him, this one thing you lack. That word lack there, it means to be deprived of. It means to be devoid of. It, 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 it speaks of, of, of simply lacking something, which is interesting because 
If this is true, this man seems to lack nothing. But he says, this one thing you lack, go your way and sell whatever. And he could be thinking, Lord, if I do that, then I'll be lacking. Right now, I'm not. I mean, I have self-righteousness. I, have, I mean, I have all the righteousness I need to be saved. And I have all that I need to, to persevere and to be fruitful within the Jewish community. But Jesus, astonishingly, so astonishingly, it's going to take the breath away from the disciples, looks at him and says, sell whatever you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasures in heaven. And it may very well, and you can see kind of the, the play on, on words there with the contrast. Um, to lack, actually, in some sense, it could also mean to be poor. To not have anything. He's looking at this man who has everything, and he's actually saying, you have nothing. Nothing at all. That what you have, son, is worthless. It's worthless. Count it all up. Look at your inheritance. Take it all into account. All the houses, all the cattle, all the lands, everything that you have accumulated. And you know what? In that you have nothing. But you want something? You want true treasures? You want them laid up in heaven? Then come. Take up your cross. Take up the cross and follow me. But this discouraged, it grieved the man. And he went away sorrowful or grieved. Why? Because he had great, grand, super possessions. Possessions that most men would have loved to have. Thus Jesus points out the idolatry of his heart and commands him to dethrone that, those things from his life such that, and take up his cross and to follow Jesus. And that saddened the man. This is not an anomaly. Jesus goes on, the disciples, he takes it like we often do with our children. You know, something happens and they say, Dad, what was that about? And you look at them and you say, Son, uh, this is what happened. Jesus takes that account, looks at his disciples, or his disciples look at him and say, like, how hard then? I, how in the world? You know, it's easy to look at this and be like, Jesus would never ask that. <laughs> I mean, he's a friendly guy. He would never ask me to do that. Um, this is probably metaphor. It's symbolic. It, 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 it no doubt in our minds um, communicates some spiritual reality. But at the same time, he asked that of that man. And he asked it really, truly, factually. Give it up. So how do you know that? Well, one, by the disciples' reaction. Like, who in the world could ever be saved then? How hard it is for those. Jesus looks at him and says, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying to themselves, then who can be saved? It's a rhetorical question. He's not actually asking Jesus, like, then which one of us are in? No, it's actually, it's a rhetorical question to bring them to, they've already came to the end of themselves um, in some reality such that they've recognized that this is an impossibility. How do you know that? Because Jesus actually says, but with God, all things are possible. Jesus looked at them and said, with men it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And then Peter, like Peter's going to speak up in verse 28, and he's going to say, Lord, but look at me. Like We've left all and followed you. We've, he got the message. He understood what it meant. He, he received the message. Peter, at least, like, we give him a rough time, but, but here, he gets it. 
Like, we did it, Lord. We left it all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. And he delineates there the great treasures of the reality of forsaking it all and, and finding Jesus. Not only, when you get, not only when you get salvation do you get all of Christ and all that is in Christ, but two, all that is in Christ you get. And you know what that is? That's more houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children. From a, from a, from a real and, and, and spiritual per, perspective, even with persecutions. But even in light of that, he says, this man walks away. Saddened. Matthew 13 and verse 44 gives us a similar parable. We've looked at this before as a congregation. It's one of my favorite passages. I actually wrote down the wrong. Now, Matthew 13... It's Mark 13. I'm notorious for writing it down. Wrong. Mark 13. And it's not. We could Google it real quick, but, 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 but the passage that I'm drawing toward is that great passage where our Lord speaks of the pearl of great price. And it's that great passage where you see the man who sells everything that he has and for the joy that's contained within it, he buys the field. That what you see there in that same reality is that same reality that a man who is, is, um, is going to come to Christ will come to Christ with nothing um, or he won't come at all. And the way in which he comes is that he recognizes that the great value of that reality um, is greater than the value of all that he has. No man in his right mind will ever give up all that he has for something that's less. But in these passages, what Jesus is arguing, that God's work and activity within the soul as it is presented to man will be presented in such a way that the glory of Christ will be, the beauty and majesty of Christ will be revealed in such a way that he will value that above all, therefore be willing to give it all for Christ. And while these were true realities, or the parables are representing some spiritual truth that's being propagated to man, is being propagated even to us today, that Jesus is clear that if a man is to come to Christ, that Christ must be preeminent. Colossians 1, chapter 18, that he is the head of the body and he is preeminent in all things, and all things flow from the head to the body, that we yield to him in hand and foot, finger and toe, in, in, in all things, in our movement, actions, deeds, everything we we submit ourselves to Christ so Jesus Christ is going throughout the gospels and um, seemingly pinpointing the idols of these men and women's hearts and pull and, and, and calling them to pull down those thrones that Jesus Christ might be recognized and acknowledged as the preeminent God that he is and thus not only do they give up those things particularly they give up it's a call to give up all things um, uh, all things together. That he's not just being asked here in uh, Mark chapter number 10 to just give up his wealth and then he's good. 
That it seems to be that Jesus pinpoints the, the, the throne in his, or the idol in his heart and calls him particularly to pull that thing down. Why? Because that's the thing that's keeping him from God. That doesn't mean that's the only thing. That there is this all-encompassing reality that when we come to Christ, we come with nothing. And that when we come to Christ, we give up all things. Why? Because we recognize the beauty, the glory, the majesty of the gospel message that Jesus Christ would enter into the world and save sinners like us, of whom we are chief. Therefore, as Peter says, that his blood is precious. And that this was not only um, a plan that was afforded as man falls, but even before the ages began, God would concoct a plan among the Godhead such that he would save sinners like us, sinners of whom I am chief. And when you see the glory of Christ in that, you recognize that that grand treasure is greater than all that could be contained within the cosmos. Therefore, I would give it all up for that. Put it all together. Gather together all the kings and all the wealth and all the money and all the land and all the creatures and all the cosmos and all the stars and the suns and the moons as, 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 as infinite as it seems to be to human eye. Gather it all together and put it in a pot and it would not weigh more than the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. And when you see it, when He reveals that to you, all comes down. And you go down with it to your face, glorifying Him, saying, I will give it all. All. And that includes your children. That includes this church. That includes your family. That includes your work. I'm not calling for utter perfection in it. We know that we have a gracious Savior. And by the Spirit of God, He labors alongside us so patiently and graciously. You know, I look back at the life of the church and I say, God, you've been so good to us. We have not been perfect by far. I have not been the pastor that I ought to be. You know, this week, two days from now, marks eight years. This is church. We gathered together eight years ago, two couples. Um... God has been gracious to us. He has brought people, He's labored alongside with all of my limitations and all of my deficiencies and all of my insufficiency. Um, the, the only thing that I do well is repent and believe. You know? And we must continue to do that. But that is what Christ demands of us. Not utter perfection, not gun-ho, militant Christianity, not, legalist, not legalism even at the smallest of iotas. But out of the love that Christ has extended to us, and because we see that beauty, majesty, and glory, um, we, we weigh out the treasures and say, this doesn't even tip the scales one ounce. Christ is worth it. If that's the case, I'll give it all. Every bit of it. Even my children. Spend my life and be spent in that field. All the sweat, blood, and tears. But know that I'm not called, it to, called you to that arbitrarily. I've called you to that for a purpose. Why? Because He desires a seed. Out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And you and I, through our faithfulness, will no doubt be the means that God will accomplish that in the mission field that he has given us here at this church. You know? So over the next few weeks, we're going to labor a little more diligently in particular texts to help you. You know? Why? Because some of you are struggling with that. 
We're struggling with that in areas, you know? Um, but I almost have that, 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 that attitude of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 as God has given him a burden for his kinsmen according to the flesh. God has so given us a burden as your leadership for your children. I'm not saying that we can save them, but I'm saying that we ought to do everything that we can that God might. Every one of them. And I'm hopeful. I am hopeful. I am optimistic. And I want you to be as well. Let us labor hard. Let us plow the field. Let us expect fruit. And let us encourage one another when we see it. When we see someone else out in the field and they're killing the thing, don't be afraid to go out and say, hey, brother, we tried that. And that doesn't work. And don't take it as an offense when somebody does. Take it as love. As Jesus loved him, he came out and he said, Brother, you're killing the field with the love of riches. Jesus loves him, confronts him in the most gracious of manners. He walks away sad and grieving. Oftentimes we do. Somebody comes, a brother comes, a sister comes, and we walk away and we're just... We're just offended and we're saddened and we're sorrowed. Why? Because we thought we had this grand plan, you know, following after the world or doing this thing or that thing. We just thought, and we've got this thing worked out. You know what you find out? You find out you don't. And you just think they're against you. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're just out before you. You know, maybe they have kids older than you. Maybe they've worked through those things. Maybe they plowed that field. Let us be Open one to another to, to, to exhort and to receive exhortation, to be admonished, to admonish and to be admonished. Let us love one another as Christ loved this man. Not only in this area, but in so many areas. That is the only way that we will grow. But if you want to be Christ's like, then do that. And let us be that one with another. And for you that don't have children, this is not to exalt the children to a place where we say this is the ideal thing. No, we recognize there are people who don't yet have. We recognize there are people that won't ever have. We recognize people that are beyond that. And what we're saying is, is that, that, that stay tuned. All right? You are needed for this. Right? That this has so many tentacles and implications, not only within the, the biological family, but within the spiritual family. You know, that God gives us these pictures to know how we relate not only to a biological family and to our own children, but to us as brothers and sisters in Christ and even the Father. We recognize the implications of ministry. That's why one of the qualifications is, men, rule your house well. Uh, why? Because discipleship's the same. Right? And that if you'll tune in and not tune out, what you'll understand, what you'll begin to understand is that these spiritual realities will be birthed in your life such that you learn of Christ, you grow, you learn of the Father. You, you, you learn so many things. Um, from these realities, why? Because the spiritual reality and the biological reality, the, the family unit and the spiritual family are so interconnected that, that most often they inform one another. As you learn about the spiritual family, you learn about the biological family. As you learn about how you relate to your children and your children relate to you, you learn about the Father and His love for you. And then that informs you, I need to love my children like Christ loved me. I need, to, I need a father who will give. Uh, I need to be a father who will give like a father gave me. I need my children to be convinced of my love as much as I'm convinced of his. I need them to know that. 
What you'll understand is that that happens too within the body of Christ. That is, there's fathers and sons. Paul said, I'm a father to them. I was, I was a, like a mother to Thessalonica. That even a man who didn't have those familial relationships is drawing off of those things to teach about the spiritual relationships that we might have here at, at this congregation. So stay tuned. Stay in. Be a help. Be an encouragement. Learn. Grow. We need you. All of you. The church is instrumental in building up the home. And the home is instrumental in building up the church. They're not at odds with one another. They're not competing for positions. They need to be yielded to Christ both in their proper manner. I guarantee you that through this you will learn much about the relationship of the church as we dig into the family. As much as we'll learn about the family by digging into the word. So don't be discouraged. Don't think, man... I can take three weeks off or four weeks off because this isn't about me. This is much about you. All of you. We're in this thing together. We need one another and we need to love one another. So let us walk together. Let us strive for faithfulness. Let us be holy, diligent, loving one to another. As we strive to honor Christ that he may be preeminent the crown and glory of who we are and all that we do. And may the world then wonder in our, at our unity and know that we have a God in Christ uh, who can save. But ultimately, this is evangelistic, John 17. That was his prayer. And may we deliver to him an answer to that prayer by the power of the Spirit of God as he employs the means of grace in our life. Um, may that be our prayer. Let's pray. Father, we love you, thank you, praise you. For all that you are, and all that you do. Father, what a precious reality to know you, to love you, to be known by you, to be loved by you. Father, as difficult as it is to live the Christian life in this world, as imperfect as we often are, as we fall on our face, Father, you are so gracious to come alongside and to pick us back up. Not seven times, but 70 times seven. Father, in that, you teach us so much grace. Father, you teach us so much patience. Father, you suffer long. And it is so didactic to us. We learn so much. Father, we look forward to, because we know of your faithfulness to us, and to you to, long, to, to labor alongside us in the days to come. Father, we don't expect it to end anytime soon, not only in this life, but the next. So Lord, go with us now. Each of us, no doubt, have loves in our life, idols in our heart it is a factory of sorts constantly producing things that will contend with you and we pray father that by the power of the spirit you would reveal the glory of christ in such a way um, that the luster would fade upon all the toys and trinkets of this life and that jesus christ would be revealed as the greatest treasure and we know that you don't always ask us to give up all things but may we be ready, if that be the call, 
And may we surely be ready spiritually to yield all things to you, Father, no matter what it be, even our parenting, even our marriages, and Father, particularly this church. Father, make yourself, through your Son, by the power of your Spirit, the purpose of it all. May he be, practically and experientially, the head of this body, such that all things flow from him. And it doesn't matter what we do, from the greatest to the smallest degree, it's all because of Christ. And because it's all because of Christ, it all matters. From the least of us to the greatest of us, and from the least of acts to the greatest of acts. Father, when your son's in it, um, in it all, we know it all means something. So help us, Father, to live practically speaking as if Christ is preeminent because he is. And may the blessings flow forth in such a way that you do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And Father, it's in Christ's name that we ask these things. Amen.